Welcome to the Warriors of Education podcast, bringing you heartwarming and real conversations with teachers on the front line of education from across the country. I am Karen Sarah Watson, and I am a teacher. This podcast is for those who want to better understand the experiences of today's teachers. Come join us. Welcome to the Warriors of Education podcast. Today, I'm really excited to have on Luke Amplett from San Antonio, Texas. Luke, can you tell me a little bit about yourself, where you teach, and just your story? Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for having me. Um, so I'm a teacher. I'm a U.S. history teacher at Burbank High School on the south side of San Antonio. Um, I work in the urban core of San Antonio in San Antonio, San Antonio ISD. Um, and I've been a teacher there for about five and a half years. Um, I'm a member of Poder, which is the rank and file caucus of uh, educators in the San Antonio Alliance, which is the teachers union, an educators union. It's a wall-to-wall merged AFT NEA local in the urban core of San Antonio. Um, and I've been doing a lot of organizing around school reopening in Texas, which is kind of a blast. Right. So I just, um, when I was, I was learning about you, I, there's an article about you being suspended. Can you explain what happened there? Uh, absolutely. So embarrassingly, unfortunately, it was kind of centered on me as a struggle. Uh, that wouldn't have been my choice. Um, but it was actually a struggle that in involved a large number of educators, uh, students, community members, and different organizations standing up around safe school reopening. It ended up resulting in me and um, kind of focusing on my placement on administrative leave for three days, three whole days. Um, before a coalition of community members, really led by students, uh, forced my reinstatement and forced really the quickest turnaround, uh, the quickest U-turn that we've ever seen from our school district, um, flexed their muscles, showed their power. Uh, but, but I've been working with a coalition of local unions, students, uh, parents and family members and different organizations all the way through the summer on safe school reopening plans and also trying to drive like a vision for what our schools could potentially be if we built a new and better normal after COVID at some point when, when we get through this. Um, so the work has been ongoing. It's been months and months of work trying to make sure that our reopening plans are safer than they could be, which really came to a head when it came time to reopen schools for face-to-face -face instruction in San Antonio. And that's kind of when um, everything blew up and uh, we saw a lot of people moving very quickly to try to defend themselves against a very real threat. Right. So tell me, tell me about what's happening in San Antonio, Texas. Right here, where I'm teaching, um, we I am doing both live and remote teaching. Um, New York City is slowly the numbers are rising in New York City. We all um, place wages on when are we going to close again? Like when is this going to happen? How long is this going to last? So can you tell me about? Because I know a lot has been going on with Texas. I also interviewed four theater teachers at the beginning, um, right before school started. So I don't know what's been happening since school started. Can, so can you explain that? So the, I mean, the thing about Texas is it's so geographically, politically uh, diverse and so many different things are happening in different places. And the story that we have in San Antonio, even, or rather at least in my district in San Antonio is about the best that it gets. So I'm working with very, very small numbers of students between one and four students face-to-face and also doing virtual instruction, which is about as good as it as it gets. It's a nightmare. And anybody who's doing both of those things at the same time can tell you it is not feasible. We right. cannot do our, do our jobs properly like this. So we, we cannot do it, um, but it's about as good as it gets. But just a few miles away in another school district in San Antonio, 
you know, teachers have 70 plus percent of students back, uh, students and families refusing to follow mask protocols. Um, and when you get outside of the major cities, things are potentially even worse than that. So in San Antonio itself, as a historic legacy of redlining and you know, racism in housing, we have 17 different independent school districts. And we're only you know, the seventh biggest city in the country. We don't have a, a unified school district. And what happens in each of the school districts is hugely different. So over the summer, we've managed to push here in San Antonio for really robust scientific objective metrics for school reopening. And it was a major success and it was wonderful. And those metrics right now are being hit and gradual phase re, like reintroduction, phase reintroduction of students is happening and it's happening in our district. Uh, we've just had the positivity rate drop below 5% for the first time in San Antonio for you know months. This was a major hotspot earlier in the summer and it's very much the trajectory is in the right direction. But as you mentioned, like we don't see this being sustainable as more and more students come back and as we see the flu season arrive, we foresee shutdowns. We see major disruptions to already disrupted, already you know, unfeasible, unsupportable school years taking place. And we're kind of counting down to when that happens and trying to keep everybody safe until it does. That's very much the attitude. And that's me in the best situation in Texas. You know, the, San Antonio and, and Austin and Houston and Dallas, the big cities have really the best situation and so many Texas educators are in much more difficult circumstances than us. Right. So what is your, um, what is your population like um, in terms of diversity? Uh, across the city, so we're um, about a 60% Latinx population. I think we're the, maybe, maybe the poorest major city in the country um, in terms of like economics. Um, I work in a school on the south side of San Antonio that is 99% Latinx and, you know, 1% African-American. Um, so 100% free and reduced lunch. And it's very much these, the schools like the one that I work in, which have been used as the bludgeon for forcing teachers back into unsafe school reopenings. As we talk about students who are coming from vulnerable home situations, you know, always presented in deficit terms, never as a celebration of our communities but students who have um, unstable or uh, potentially dangerous, vulnerable living situations needing to come back and needing schools to reopen for, for them to serve them, which is a great argument. It's one that we agree with and we think that we should you know, really troubleshoot and problem solve around. Um, but then we see two things. So one is we don't see those students coming back to our schools. We see a lot of athletes who have to meet UIL um, you know, rules to be able to play. And Texas loves football. So we seem to have a lot of big dudes um, back in our schools right now who are not the people who we were told we had to reopen schools for. And then secondly, if we really care about those kind of things, we need much more holistic and far reaching social policies, which can keep people supported and safe in their homes. You know, we need rent moratoriums. We need uh, eviction moratoriums. We need to cancel. Uh, bills and electricity bills. We need public Wi-Fi if we're going to take this crisis seriously. And in the absence of all of those things, because, you know, Texas and because of America, um, we see educators just being forced back as the stopgap, which opens up the economy again. Um, so I think, you know, I'm sure it's the same way you are. A lot of us just looking in disbelief at the situation we're being forced into um, and very, very worried about what happens over the next few months. 
how supported are you with your by your administration? And you you have said that you're in a good you're in a good school. So are, are you being supported in that way? Very unsupported uh, by our administration. I mean, the word the teachers use where I am is dehumanized, totally ignored, and gaslighted in terms of uh, the concerns that we have. And in my school, you know, it was my administration that forced me, um, you know, with district leadership support into uh, administrative leave, really tried to retaliate very hard against me for First Amendment protected union organizing at my campus. And they didn't manage to stamp on us. I think the plan was to get me out of there, hope things would quiet down. You know, I'm quite a visible person in the union and across the district. So I think the, the idea was to use me as an example to really make people worried about retaliation. And it had the exact opposite effect. Everybody yeah. started standing up. Uh, my colleagues wrote letters about their concerns. We met with a state senator who then went and met with the superintendent. And a lot changed at our school overnight. And we suddenly got a much safer reopening plan. And that process was echoed at a lot of schools across our district. We had students organizing, standing up. So I think that you know the organizing that we've done has made things much safer in the schools in which we work. It's just very frustrating that each of these victories isn't the maximal victory, which is take defending human life seriously, close schools when you need to, you know, invest in contact tracing and testing infrastructure, um, follow the science around, you know, the airborne nature of COVID and the fact that six feet wearing a mask in 15 minutes um, shouldn't be what the definition of close contact is. We should have much broader definitions of co close contact that take into account things like the quality of our terrible ancient air conditioning systems. Yeah, um, and, it, and it's very, very difficult, even though we've had so many small victories, it's very difficult to feel upbeat when the big victory is, is so out of reach. And the big right. victory is, is that we defend human life and we prioritize human life in the way that uh, some other countries have managed to do. Right. I mean, we're working against a government too, and especially, you know, your your governor um, in Texas too. But I mean, no, Texas is a big place, and luckily, there you have um, mayors and in, um, in places that are more progressive. But well, first of all, I want to say um, congratulations on the work that you've done. Um, if it's not for teachers like you who stand up. Um, so many people would be in danger or might have lost their lives because of it. So um, I think it's amazing what you're doing. Um, unfortunately, there's like, there's so many places around the country where uh, teachers don't have leaders like you, um, where they don't have the support and, um, and, you know, hopefully that teachers will hear something like this and be empowered to know that they can stand up too, which is really important. Um, so tell me about your work with social justice. I know you do a lot of work with social justice too around this area because you said you you come from a, um, a, a free lunch a free lunch and a high poverty area. So, um, what does that look like in terms of uh, the 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 equipment that students need to do online learning? I mean, are they getting what they need? So so like yes to some extent. So we have one to one technology that's going out to students. But then we have, um, you know, creaking local infrastructure in terms of access to the internet for students. Uh, we have schools in which the Wi-Fi doesn't want to work for whole days at a time, or we can't access Zoom, or we can't teach. Uh, while we have, you know, I'm sitting in my house right now, and the internet works perfectly. Does, doesn't drop me, doesn't kick me out of your Zoom. But today, multiple times, 
I couldn't access Zoom classes to do synchronous instruction with my students. So, you know, that I think there are very easy PR fixes the districts can do, which is handing out laptops to everybody. It's great, it's wonderful. But the deeper questions are always about infrastructure. They're always about access that goes beyond just a laptop. Um, and we've done a lot of work here over the years around things like policing, around uh, immigration, like issues. We work with a lot of undocumented and mixed status families um, around housing, uh, around paid sick time, which we don't have across San Antonio for, for most working people here. Oh, and no. those networks of support and solidarity are the ones who come out when we have issues around school reopening. So what the, the organizing that we've seen uh, that got me reinstated very quickly in the space of just a couple of days, and that has really driven uh, safe reopening messages in the city has been led a lot by non-educators, by folks who are coming out in solidarity, because over the years we've been there with them. And like, right. I think that's a really powerful thing. You know, we can, we can think about the infrastructure, we can think about Wi-Fi, all of those things. But if we're not gonna talk about the fact that a global pandemic that's killed over 200,000 Americans, that is projected to maybe kill 400,000 by the end of the year, is a moment where we have to have a reckoning about solidarity and mutual aid and love. And, and the actual outpourings of love that we need in our communities where we act in material support for one another. And it goes way beyond Wi-Fi, right? It goes, it goes to making sure that people can feed themselves, people aren't getting kicked out of their homes and that our students are able to grapple with and deal with the trauma that they're experiencing at the moment. And that is far too absent in our schools, right? I've already been asked to predict which of my students are gonna pass state assessments next May but no admin has ever asked me in years and certainly not this year about the way I'm helping my students grapple with the trauma of this moment. And helping how is my that? Students. Yeah. And how are they doing? How are your students doing right now? You came back and what, what has been, what has that been like? I mean, they're incredibly resilient. You know, I hate, I hate that word and I hate the, the grit word, but the students like the ones that we work with don't have to be taught about those things because they live it because they experience how tough the world is. You know, my students are going, um, are going to work and they're working asynchronously on challenging, you know, serious uh, high school assignments and trying to grapple with that at the same time as they're babysitting um, their younger siblings who are also going to school and they're coping with it. And they're coping with it because they have to and they're surviving it. But they are not being given by this uniquely punitive, uniquely cruel society in which we live, the things that they really need in this moment, which are, you know, serious human interaction um, look at countries that have, have dealt with this very seriously. In France, the government is still paying 85% of workers' paychecks. It just basically took over paying people to stay home. Um, that kind of transformative action allows people to survive a pandemic like this, not just physically, but also in terms of the incredible mental strain that this is putting on everybody. And as educators, we know what it's like, but for our students, for the families who are having to grapple with virtual instruction with them, um, who have multiple kids at home who are, who are trying to learn desperately online for hours and hours a day because of very you know, draconian and uh, neoliberal um, ideas of seat time, of screen time on Zoom and about like standardized test scores. It's incredibly difficult. And I think the most insulting and the most dehumanizing thing that we can do at this moment is ask our kids to care about things that don't matter. And like, these like, ass like assessments. Exactly. <laughs> like these standardized test test scores. Just... When 
when the yeah. things that they're caring about are their relatives who are sick. Right. Right. The people in their communities and their neighbors who are facing eviction. Right. I mean, I'm hearing, the, I, I can't believe uh, the last interview I had was in um, from Florida. And this teacher was like, you know, had her job on the line if she didn't do assessments. And I can't believe the word assessments are being brought up at all right now. I mean, it should be all social emotional learning right now. It should be just like, you know, like how, how, do, how do we help them get through this together? How do we learn from this? Like, what are the lessons that students can learn and what are the lessons that we're learning? But, you know, schools don't know how to adjust that way. I mean, it's just, they don't, and we also have the worst of the worst secretary of education. We don't have any leadership that's guiding us. So it really is up to people like you and um, and the and organizers to lead the way. Like we're kind of just figuring it out on our own, it seems. Yeah, definitely. There definitely isn't leadership on this issue, right? And I think like if we're gonna think about assessment, let's let's assess ourselves and let's ask the question, what does it mean about the American education system that at this moment we have people focusing on standardized test scores and not on fully humanizing the students and the families that we serve? What does that mean? What does that tell us? And we know that schools are geographically specific manifestations of society as a whole, right? They don't exist as separate islands. And unfortunately, they manifest a lot of the same messed up features that American society does. This is a uniquely punitive, uniquely cruel in so many ways society in global terms, in, in terms of developed countries in this, uh, countries in the world. Um, and our schools manifest too many of those things. And unfortunately, our schools as, as spaces also shape us as educators, as social beings, as political beings, and the ways that we, that we act. Uh, but I see educators going to work every day and grappling with this issue of being forced into um, doing things that are not right for kids. And it, we're in a moment where we have to grapple with that in ways that we never have done before, and we have to act on it. And that act can look like a refusal to, to fail students during a pandemic, because what are you? failing them for like what are you doing you, get, well, you want them to repeat your class next year come on um and it might look like taking collective action and um like i we've been put in a situation that we didn't we didn't choose but educators across the country are the most organized the most unified the most progressive people organizations unions that we have they're the they're the only national uh, organizations that can act collectively in this moment. And we're seeing it start. We're seeing it start in Austin. We've seen it start in Little Rock. We saw it already in, in Chicago and in LA this year where they were refusing to return to unsafe uh, working environments. We saw it with the Moore Caucus in New York, like refusing. And we, we can't tell what it's gonna look like, but it is on us, this terrible responsibility that we didn't choose to make sure that this doesn't go worse than, right. than it already is. Uh, because I think it's really tempting for us to feel like we're a long way into this pandemic. There's no reason for us to think like that. And we've just had a terrible experience of the spring and the summer. And the spring and the summer isn't the time where we have to be worried about illnesses like this. And as we move into the, the late fall and the winter, uh, things can get very, very bad. And they can get very bad even if we get Trump out. Um, this, is, this has got such a grip on our communities. And educators, are just about the only people in a position to really act to change that. Right. So tell me about, I want to hear about some of the things you're doing right now. What are the, what are the, some of the ways you're organizing? 
So I've just come out of a meeting with about 100 of, uh, union members uh, in San Antonio where we're talking about how we uh, force our district to honor accommodations around folks who are immunocompromised, folks who have immunocompromised people in their homes who have been given the accommodation of working for, uh, from home for the first nine weeks of school, which takes them to next Tuesday. And right now everybody is being told that they need to come back. So we are organizing very hard around real existential threats to people, like real dangers to, to people's survival at this moment. Um, and then we're trying to build networks of solidarity with students who see that this is crazy and who understand that they don't have a voice in their schools with parents and families who are creaking under the stress of working with students at home every day, but don't want to send them back either to unsafe schools or to make the situation more unsafe for educators who are already there. Um, so, you know, we're, we're moving forward with all of that work. Um, we're trying to center students and families and community members in that work, center student voice, have student leaders driving a lot of these conversations because they get, they get tokenized a lot and, and they shouldn't be. Um, if, we, if we shut up and we create spaces for them to organize and we follow their lead, they do incredible things. Um, so, you know, we are, we're trying desperately, like I love working with curriculum, like culturally relevant pedagogy um, and critical pedagogy. And I love doing that work, but unfortunately we haven't got time to do it. And we love working on things like discipline and school policing. And right now, everybody is just focused on reopening because it, it presents the absolutely greatest threat, not only to our lives, but in terms of what's going to come in, in terms of austerity next, right? It's, present such an enormous threat to the existence of our public schools. We know that this pandemic is going to be followed by a pandemic of like a different kind, another um, attack on public education. Yeah, another wave, another tsunami of privatization, of union busting that's going to come sweeping uh, behind this and a wave of austerity and cuts that are going to come behind it. So we're trying through this pandemic, as we try to keep people safe, also to build the structures that can fight back against that. And it's very, very deep organizing. It's very long organizing. It's, it's tiring organizing. Um, it often seems like it isn't getting to where it needs to, um, but we're trying to be patient and trying to build those connections in our communities. Right, so what motivates you when this is all so damn hard? What, what keeps you going in all of this? Uh, there, there isn't a choice, really. I mean, that's what, that's what motivates me. Um, this is the work and this is the situation we find ourselves in. Like I think Noam Chomsky always ends up ending like talks by basically saying the same thing and it's the perfect like line. So we should all steal it, which is like, we have two choices. One of them is that we do nothing and we guarantee that the worst happens. And the other choice doesn't come with any guarantees of success. There's no reason, unfortunately, for us to think that our organizing necessarily wins, but it does hold that hope alive it does create the possibility that things can be better than they otherwise would be. And what we've seen around the country, while educators haven't had a lot of maximal victories around COVID, we've seen reopening plans consistently that are much better and much safer because people have stood up. And we can't even guess how many lives that are saved. And that's the work. Right. You know, I noticed, because um, I've interviewed a ton of people with more in New York City, the movement of rank and file, um, they're, it's amazing what they did. And it, it is amazing the impact that the protests, you know, the people that I interviewed and the protests that they've, they, they, they've had and the, just all of the organizing, it worked, the pressure worked. I mean, 
unfortunately we're still like doing live teaching, but it's safer. It is, it, it has become safer. It's not ideal. We all believe that we should be remote right now, but it works. And, and, and what I've learned through this podcast of all the, you know, I love talking to organizers mostly because I see that the, the hard work that you put into this, the hours and hours on top of just planning as a teacher that I'm, you know, that it, it's, it's making a difference. So what, what could you say to people like who maybe don't have that leadership in their school, like about schools in like, you know, in states where they're, they're very powerless, like they don't have unions. What can we, what can we tell people to help them rise up and do what you're doing right now? Talk to one person and then talk to another and uh, like, and move forward like that. I mean, every, every great piece of organizing starts with a conversation and that conversation should start from a place of listening and fully humanizing each other and sitting together in the fear and the horror of, of what we're looking at. And what we find is that when we get people together and they talk, it naturally leads to conversations about what we do next. Um, so I was just involved in that like mini uprising in my school and in my district, and I didn't lead it. I've done a lot of this work, but I didn't lead it. A whole group of educators coming together and having a conversation about what they're facing led it. Um, and organically in those spaces, we start talking about what we do next and how we solve these problems. And that's how we decide what to do, right? There's, there's no structure that we can impose on these situations. There's only what the people who are most directly impacted in those spaces decide to do together. And that can be very, very powerful. Right, right. And I'm seeing that. I can, I, I can tell in my, um, like, where I work, um, I, there's a lot of fear about standing up to administration. And, um, and then I see, again, the people I talk to and what they're doing. And I so want to be, you know, like help people rise up. But it, there's a lot of like people who just don't want to, you know, that, that we're, we're kind of getting pounced upon with like rule breaking, a lot of that going on. And, um, you know, I don't, I, I don't even know how to, I don't even know myself how to, how to help people see that like they need to do this because right now it's just like you know i feel like rules are starting to be broken and like it's it's it, things are starting to fall apart a little bit and like you know you just give it an inch you think people will take a mile and so i you know i i i can hope that you know we can i can find more people who feel the same but it's it's hard it's hard in schools where um the administration is so strong where um, it's not just administration, it's like the, the district and the, 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 um, like the DOE, like, you know, really likes these, these, this administration and no one can see if, if something goes wrong, it's hard to get anybody to see that something's going wrong. And so it's frustrating for me. Um, but I am, I am motivated and I'm also, um, I really, um, admire, that the work that people are putting into this and I can hope that other people can see other teachers can see this and won't be so afraid that's why I asked that question because I see the fear where I work I see a lot of people way too afraid like are just taking the the low road and be like well no I don't want to you know I don't want to disturb it's already disturbing enough we have enough on our plate you know we have it's like we're exhausted we don't get breaks between classes we're working like i i have like i talk five hours straight and i don't get a break i don't even you know i 
I was like, I have to go to the bathroom. Can I go to the bathroom? And, and the, the principal was like, well, you'll just have to figure out what to do with that, you know? So, um, yeah, so I just, you know, I, I, I appreciate the work and I, I, I wish, I wish it would be like that for, I wish we had enough people where I am that would rise up and, and do that. Cause I think that it would really help the situation. Yeah. And I think like, we should give everybody a break, and especially ourselves, when when this is very hard to do, right? American capitalism is structured in such a way as to atomize us, um, to make us feel like individuals, to strip from us any collective knowledge of collective action and solidarity. Um, you know, I'm a US history teacher. I know that the curriculum here in Texas does not teach about the collective struggles that have made this country a better place to live in. Right. Obviously, I teach about them, but the curriculum deliberately removes all of those things and makes right. people feel like, you know, a great leader or some voting changed everything. And it's not true and it's never been true. And I think all of the people that you're talking about, one of the commonalities between a lot of these folks is they see themselves as workers. Right. If you, when you see yourself as a worker first and then a teacher and you understand that there is a dynamic, there is a hierarchical structure, there is a, a relationship of power and domination which a boss holds over you and when you understand that the threat of retaliation isn't just a threat about retaliation professionally but it is a threat that they hold over your family over your life your ability to pay your bills keep you know the people that you love fed there is a critical consciousness that can be developed in that space it is a class consciousness it is a consciousness of power relations and it's essential to collective action but it's really hard because the ideology of this country, the you know, founding ideology of this country um, works very deliberately to remove that from, from people's understanding of the world. And it's hard across all workplaces. You know, we see Amazon workers organizing. We see Google workers organizing, right? These, you know, relatively privileged, well-paid tech workers organizing around sexism, organizing around Google, working with, you know, creating like drone, whatever they're doing um, in terms of foreign policy. And it's the same everywhere. It's the same whether you're a teamster or an educator in a workplace. We've got bosses, they've got power. The only way that we can shape those workplaces, uh, keep people safe, have better working conditions, teach the way we want to, is if we get together. And I think unless people have that, that really stark understanding that there is no other way except to organize together if you want it to be better, it's very, very hard for us to do the work. But if they can get that understanding, we can move people to action and people have done it for hundreds of years in this country under much tougher circumstances than we faced, facing much worse dangers than we face and with the law on their side even less than we have it. So, you know, it's doable. We should be hopeful. Yeah, definitely. So where do you see, um, once we get out of COVID, where do you want to see all of this work head to? Like, what, what, is, what do you want to see in a year from now? I mean, I, I want everyone to be safe. It'd be great if yes, we can get out of COVID. <laughs> we, we, yeah, we got a, we got a vaccine. Um, we can be back to school face to face. You know, what we're doing at the moment is not joyful for a lot of us. It's not for the students. It's not for the educators. I love my class. I, I'm in this profession because I love it. I love the work and I love my students. Um, so I want us to be back in schools together and, and working together. And I want us to grapple really fundamentally at a deep level with what our schools should be, right? Should our schools be... Um, accountability and testing factories where we churn out docile workers for the future um, with a bunch of good test scores and maybe get some merit pay or should they be spaces of liberation right should they be spaces 
which are prefigurative, which prefigure a better society, which is more democratic, which is more humanizing. And that's the work that I'm interested in. And that's work that is you know, about curriculum, it's about discipline, um, it's about educator and student voice, most centrally. And I think that's like, that, that sounds like a long project, but it's one that we have to grapple with because I think it would be really cool to work in community controlled, democratically organized schools. And we should figure out what that looks like and we should try it. Right. Well, um, first of all, I honor you. I, I learned a lot from you in, in just such a short time. So I, I just wanna thank you for, um, for what you've said and the work you do is incredible and just keep working, keep doing it. And I hope people listen to this podcast and are as um, inspired as I am from the things that you've said today. So thank you for so much for being on the Warriors of Education podcast. I wish you the best of luck. I will be following you and um, following what you do. And I'll, I'll make sure I post any, any organizations on the on the podcast so people can follow you also and, and maybe become part of some of these organizations also. That would be great. So thank, thank you so much for being, thank you so much for being part of it. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Let's get in trouble. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks for listening. The Warriors of Education podcast is produced by me, Karen Sarah Watson, and edited by Alyssa Renzi. If you are a teacher or you know of a teacher who has a great story, you can find us at warriorsofeducation.com or email us at warriorsofeducation at gmail.com. Thank you so much for listening. Teachers, we hear you, we see you, we honor you.